Web3 has attracted over $90 billion of equity investment, primarily over the last three years. That's Thomas Olson, the global co-lead of Bain's Web3 and Metaverse practice. Today on the show, Thomas and I will discuss why investors are funding a massive build-out of Web3 infrastructure, despite the turmoil of the past year. We've had a chance to look at hundreds of Web3 assets. I'd say probably more than half of those are unsustainable models. But there are actually very interesting assets there that have real structural value. At the heart of this conversation is a question of how Web3 infrastructure could enable users to interact in novel, efficient ways. Ask yourself, why is it that if I wire money to a bank in London, it takes three days to turn up? Why do we have 19th to 20th century technologies in our financial services system? Why is it I can buy a stock on the stock market from 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Monday through Friday, but I can buy Bitcoin 24-7, 365 days a year instantaneously? Ask yourself the question about why there are such massive inefficiencies in pieces of our economy, and then you realize that these technologies are going to be addressing these inefficiencies, solving these inefficiencies in a way that's going to make people's lives better, less expensive to do transactions, and it's going to happen. Forget the board ape, forget the Bitcoin price in the newspaper. That is not what the economy around Web3 is at all. I'm Hugh MacArthur, head of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's begin with a very simple question. As you would define it, what is Web3? Web3 really is the next generation or next evolution of the internet. In a nutshell, Web1 initially was really a read-only type of internet. Web2 was read and write. And while it enables transactions in e-commerce, it really doesn't enable native transactions on the internet. So Web3 adds that transaction and concept of persistent digital identity where today you log into each website. If you want to make a payment, that payment has to go out into a Visa or MasterCard or another payment system. And you have to credentialize and authenticate yourself in each individual silo. And those transactions need to be reconciled. So the basic idea is to have a common ledger, a common data framework, so that multiple parties can recognize the same information and your identity can be persistently recognized across different types of platforms on the internet. So, so in this new decentralized world, the different components of it will know who I am without me having to authenticate myself at every time I go into every piece. Yeah, so the idea that you can log in instead of using like your login information for each website or maybe using Apple or Facebook type of thing to, to log in, you could log in with your identity wallet and would be able to share the specific information that you permitted it to share with each counterparty on the internet. And I would say you know, a lot of people call it decentralized. Really, the main concept is interoperability. It could be a lot of decentralized or intermediated type of participants, but it's really the point of interoperating across different participants in the internet. Let's talk a little bit now, Thomas, about some of what I'll call the chaos that has enveloped this world over the course of the past six to 12 months. As you well know better than anyone, we've had collapses in cryptocurrency price. We've had questions around the efficacy and value of NFTs. Really, we've had the FTX collapse as a major exchange for trading. It seems like there's it's quite messy in the Web3 world, or at least in the crypto end of it right now. What do you make of all that? And what should investors be thinking about when we read this in the media every single day? Sure. So the Web3 has attracted over $90 billion of equity investment, primarily over the last three years. And 
while a lot of the Web3 projects are building real infrastructure and attractive use cases, a lot of them have also been pretty speculative and been based effectively on leveraged one-way bets on asset prices, business models that really are not sustainable, and in some cases, outright fraud. In fact, most of our diligence work on this space, and we've, you know, we've had a chance to look at hundreds of Web3 assets, I'd say probably maybe more than half of those are, are unsustainable models. But there are actually very interesting assets there that have real structural value. So like anything else, this has driven a lot of speculation. There's a lot of fluff out there. There are a lot of things that are actually never going to create economic value. But what I hear you saying is that underneath that, there is a very valuable and sizable infrastructure that's being built that will have tremendous value to transform the way that we operate in the digital world. So you mentioned a $90 billion. That really sounds like a massive build out. Do you have other kinds of growth figures that might surprise the audience to the show? Well, I think the other statistic that's very relevant is consumer adoption. So, you know, we do frequent customer surveys in a number of markets, including the U.S. About 18% of the U.S. population has owned or, or traded crypto. And 13% of the population has done it in the last 12 months. That's about half the, the penetration that mutual funds would have in the U.S. Wow. So it's pretty significant. And even more interesting, when you break it down by demographic, that 18% is very concentrated in younger and affluent populations. So if you take the 24 to 44-year-old age group with income above $75,000 a year, over 30% of that group has participated in crypto. And they're pretty fluent already with the different types of wallets. A lot of the opening of the accounts over the last two years has not been in native crypto companies. It's been in PayPal, Robinhood, Cash App, Venmo, and those type of apps. So you're seeing a convergence now also across the retail equity brokerage and payment apps in terms of how those people are interacting with crypto. So given these real world applications, do you think that for investors, the Web3 space is still too speculative? Or is there a case that we should be moving ahead confidently into certain areas of the space now? So I, I would be break that down into two buckets. I think the one is the direct investments in Web3. And we have a database of about 5,000 Web3 companies. And we've broken that down into different thematic groups and kind of risk levels almost. There's some parts of Web3 that are very early stage, more uncertain. But there are also now scale companies in Web3, some of the custodians or the, the data companies that have a, a large group of very well-respected industry investors in them. So I think for most investors, there's something there. And the main point here is to really be discerning and disciplined in how you sort through and map and segment it out. The, the second point is the indirect impact or traditional companies. There's a Web3 threat or opportunity, depending on the type of company, especially if you look out at a three to six year time frame. The timing question is really the biggest question uh, and, and biggest challenge. If you're a fund are you trying to focus on this year or five years ahead? Right. What's your relative appetite for that? I think the planning horizon for funds has gotten shorter because the cycle time of technology has gotten faster over the last several years. And this is obviously something that was impacted by COVID as well. We've seen in many areas of technology things that were projected and were on penetration curves that might have taken five or 10 years to be pulled forward to now. And I think that there are elements of Web3 that are being pulled forward into now. And like you, Thomas, I see that 
a lot of what's reported in the media that you listen to is kind of what I'll call the sex and violence of the Web3 world. It's That's not, what's newsworthy, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not actually where the economics are, and it's not actually where the money's going to be made. The money's going to be made right now in building out this infrastructure that's going to allow all of these different types of transactions to take place and the kind of interoperability that you've been describing. And that's happening real time. Uh, and new products and services are, are being developed in real time. And so finding those, becoming conversant with them, understanding whether they're an opportunity or threat to your investment business model is something I'd argue investors need to get on today. Because next year or the year after that, you might be losing money because you missed out on something. So whether it's standing up a team or whether it's investing in time and effort on the part of the talent that you have to understand some of these transversal things that are going on that affect many subsectors. If you're not doing it now, I wouldn't personally be sleeping very well at night. And you have some funds that are way up the curve and some that have no idea. We had a call with the tech team oh, this a little while ago, and, and they wanted to talk about DeFi. And about five minutes into the discussion, they said, hold on, we, we don't understand anything you're talking about. You know, what is a blockchain? So the difference is just striking, right? And it's typically growth equity and the venture firms are much more comfortable with things that have a speculative component in it and a wider range of outcomes in terms of a return fan. So they tend to be the types of investors that are most conversant with these types of topics, whereas more traditional buyout investors, even ones that are quite sophisticated in tech, may not be delving into this world yet. And they really need to because it's going to really transform multiple industries. You've mentioned financial services a whole bunch of times. And I know that uh, our financial services team here at Bain would say financial services equals financial technology in the future. And that's a huge statement when you're talking about 20% of global GDP. That alone means massive change. Uh, 100%. But I would say our most sophisticated investor clients that have really thought about this are no longer positioning it as a tech or fintech topic. They've looking at it as a horizontal topic across sectors. At Bain, we've done the same thing. It used to be more of a financial services topic. We've now defined this as a cross-sector topic. And really, the expertise needed is at the intersection of that Web3 understanding and the subsector. So if you're looking at retail or luxury or payments or capital markets, you really need to understand in depth the, the subsector as well as the Web3 content. That's how we're organized. I think a number of Different investors are also organizing in a similar way, depending on their overall setup of their investment teams. On the next episode of Drive Hunter, this is a window of opportunity. This is a chance for us to hire talent that we couldn't get before. Thomas will explain how the leading private equity firms are building out their Web3 capabilities, from sourcing to diligence to the bleeding edge of tokenization fund management. I'm Hugh MacArthur. Thank you for listening.